I'm Amy Walter. I'm excited to welcome you to this special edition of the Odd Years podcast. We launched this podcast in early 2023, an odd numbered year, because even though national elections are on something of a hiatus, the issues, trends, and personalities that impact electoral politics are always in cycle. And today's conversation is exactly the kind of conversation we envisioned for this podcast. A conversation where those of us who appreciate politics, elections, and campaigns can dabble in other areas of interest. On November 7th, I had the pleasure of speaking with two deeply thoughtful and intentional people who have converted their passion for politics and history into a captivating series that launches its fourth season, quite literally, on November 10th. I'm talking about one of my favorite shows, Apple TV's For All Mankind. If you've seen the show and you're familiar with our work here at the Cook Political Report, you'll understand why I spend so much time with the season opening montages and the electoral maps that define the presidential winners in this alternative world of historical events. My guests, Ben Nadivi and Matt Wolpert, executive producers and writers for All Mankind, had the audacity to imagine a world where the Soviets beat the U.S. to the moon, setting off an entirely different chain of events, offering its characters new endings to some of our age-old leadership, relationship, and geopolitical tensions. We are taking our odd pod to a whole new universe (laughs) with Matt and Ben. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, you guys. Ben, the DV, Matt Wolpert, this is so exciting for me uh, as a big fan of For All Mankind. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. And I wanted to start this by telling you all and, of course, our listeners how I became a fan of your show, which was uh, my wife had COVID and was in the other room as in those, that era we were all quarantining from each other. And she was watching the show because I could hear it in the background. And then I heard, this was your intro, I think, to the third season, where it's the opening montage and Gary Hart is elected to a second term. And I was like, what is this magical show you are watching? Where where are we? I need to know more about this. Then I started it and got hooked. And it's not just that I got hooked on this alternate history, but the characters and all of the drama and uh, the nuance that you bring to this. So I obviously want to dive deep with you guys because I know you're history dorks and politics dorks like I am. But I wanted to start with you first about the conceit of the show, how this started. When people ask me, well, I tell them, you guys have to watch the show. You'll love it. They ask me, what is it about? I say, oh, well, it's 1969 and it's the Soviets that win the space race, not the Americans. And we start from there and go forward. Is that how you guys thought of this show? Did it start as what would happen if we lost the space race? Or did you start with, we want to make a show about NASA and all the cool things about space and the characters there? Yeah, it it did start sort of in that second way you're describing where we were we had been really fascinated with the American space program in different ways when we first learned about the history of Werner von Braun and all of that complicated stuff we were like wow there's something really interesting in this it's like a very gray world but it has these idealistic elements as well but the more we talked about the sort of the reality of what the space program was it was a little depressing, honestly, because we got this like period of great achievement. And then it just sort of petered out Mm. when the space race stopped becoming so neck and neck. We were able to get to the moon and the Soviets never were able to match that. And then we stopped pushing each other forward. And Mm. so we started exploring this idea of like, well, what if the space race never ended? What if we did keep pushing each other forward? And part of that was that we would have had to lose the race to the moon. And one of the mantras of our show is by losing the race to the moon, we wind up winning overall, Uh, not we Americans, but like earth humanity (laughs) winds up winning because it keeps us pushing forward. And it really just opened up the world of like, well, if that one thing changes, what are the other butterfly effects that as, as you said, as political and history junkies, our minds just started 
reeling with that premise. Yeah. And that's such a great way to think of this because it's not just that you're pushing each other of who can get to the moon first, who can put the first woman on the moon, who can get to Mars. It's going there and then finding these resources, right? So what would happen if we didn't need oil from the Middle East? How is that going to change our geopolitics? Is that what you guys were thinking through that too? Always. I mean, I think, you know, as students of history, we also acknowledge that we like to think of the Apollo program as this really utopian, oh my God, we just want to go to the moon and we, and this will be great (laughs) for us and for science and research. But the reality is the more we learned about it, the more it did come about in more of a competitive Cold War feeling of showing that democracy in America is more powerful than the Soviet Union. And I think a lot of times in history, even the, the idea of going to the moon just to settle on the moon wasn't enough, that it would be about resources and about what can we gain from this adventure. And by the way, this has been the same thing throughout history, really, when you think about it. Like, right. why, why did we come to the colonies? Why did we conquer new worlds? It was a sense of adventure for sure, but it was also a sense of competitive advantage and and the fight for resources. And I think as we push forward in our show, we do in, in certain ways use history as a reference point. We like to say our IP is history. <laughs> you know, we're adapting history. So each season, we kind of look at certain moments in history as a reference point. Like season two was the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and and use those okay. references sometimes to really ground the show uh, in a way that it's not it's not pure fantasy sci-fi, that it it really feels as real and grounded as possible. Would you all categorize this as science fiction? I know everybody wants to stereotype every show has to fit into a nice, neat box, but this doesn't neatly fit into that, at least not for, for me. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, an astute question. I think we've never really thought of it as science fiction. We've really thought of it as a, a character drama where a, a lot of the people's jobs happen to be in science. So technically it is about science and it is fiction. So on a broad <laughs> level, you could say that, but it, it isn't really a traditional science fiction show. I think for Ben and I, what we've always been the most intrigued by with this show is the ability to tell the stories of characters' lifetimes because we jump a decade every season. So you're able to see, you know, people you met in season one as either a young girl or as a young father. You're now seeing them in, you know, that young girl in her 40s, you know, having risen up and being successful or that that young father and all the the ups and downs of his life. And now he's in his early 70s. And being able to have that scope of storytelling has just been such a rewarding and unique experience as people who who tell stories for a living. And it, it is one of the things I also enjoy so much is the richness of these characters. And that's what I wanted to ask you both. Did you start with a very clear idea of who the anchor characters were? I have my theories of who the anchor characters are, but I, I'm curious how you guys started that. We did. You know, we when we started this out, we had an, a, a six, seven season arc in mind and we had the core characters. But we also knew for the show to work where we're jumping in time a decade each season that our core characters in season one probably won't be our core characters by the end of the show. And that we didn't want to make that a one fell swoop transition. We wanted to kind of bring new characters in as older characters leave. Otherwise, the show becomes about five 120-year-old astronauts by season <laughs> seven. <laughs> so it was out of necessity. But I think, like Matt said, it, it was an interesting creative challenge as well. You know, I think even the first episode, when you watch it, it's so different than the third episode. You know, we really wanted to show the butterfly effect. I think there's been a lot of alternate history in fiction that's dystopian, that shows how dark things have come. The Nazis won. Let's jump in time 50 years later, right? right? We really, really wanted to get into seeing the change as it was happening. So that meant starting the show with a world of a NASA program run by white men, white hot pilots, you know, hot shot pilots from right stuff. And then seeing the, yeah. the change happen from episode to episode. And I think it got kind of embracing that change. And so there were big characters in the show that didn't even appear until episode three. And that was very intentional, but also very counter to kind of the traditional TV model of how you would tell a story. And that you make rocket scientists interesting. I mean, Margot is, I think your core character here coming in as a young woman 
in an all-male field and watching her development, is there somebody that's been easier or harder to write about as you've been going through this, as you're aging them through these years? That's a really interesting question. I I wouldn't say one is harder or easier than the others. I mean, there are ones that I relate to more than others. Like I mm. relate very much with Margot, probably the most of all the characters in the show personally. But I think one of the things you have to learn to do as a writer is to be really empathetic and to sort of put yourself in the mindset of whatever character you're writing at that moment. And I think it's something we constantly try to do is not only empathize with the characters that we like, but also try to empathize with the characters who are making decisions maybe that we don't like. <laughs> like in season one with Deke, you know, when Ellen comes out to him, it felt very important to us that he react in an authentic way to that man at that period in time. Even if he was a, a beloved character who was doing something that everybody was like, no, just accept her for who she is. Right. But it felt like a true moment. And it felt also like that moment would really have an impact on Ellen's character arc going forward in a way that it was going to take her a long time to overcome. Yeah. And that felt like a really powerful story. Yeah, that's a challenge I always think as you're writing from a historical place is not to put our own 21st century values into these characters. And it reminded me, PBS had a show where you would go and live in like colonial times or live in Victorian times and you couldn't break character, you know? And so the women were furious because they were like, <laughs> he doesn't speak for me. And right. the men were like, actually, we do speak for you. <laughs> you don't. And then one woman, her job was to be the scullery maid. And she's like, so I'm sorry, hold on. So literally all I do is sit here and scrub these pots. And they're like, no, that's, that's it. Like you don't have any, there's no other wow. thing for you to do. And that's what I wanted to get to. There was this line I heard from, from one of you when you were describing the show saying that even as you're going through these difficult times in history and keeping true to the moments, those moments in time or that era, that there's an optimistic thread that runs through it. And Ellen certainly seems to be one of those. It's that there's a woman elected yeah. president. There are women that go to the moon. There are women heroes. There are African-American characters, women who are heroes and are the centerpiece. But tell me what else you mean when you say that there's an optimistic thread here. We'll be right back with more from The Odd Years. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into The Odd Years podcast. We hope you're enjoying the interviews, but we need your help. One of the best ways to support our podcast is by leaving a review on your favorite platform. Leave just a few words about what you like about the show. Your review not only helps us know what we're doing right, but it also helps other people find the odd years. And speaking of helping other listeners find the odd years, please share your favorite episode of the show with someone you think might enjoy these conversations. On behalf of our entire team, thank you for your support. And now back to our conversation. Tell me what else you mean when you say that there's an optimistic thread here. I think it's aspirational in a way, right? The idea mm -hmm. of being able to see someone's trajectory over their lifetime. For instance, like Aleda Rosales, that character, seeing her as a girl, and then she rises up to become one of the head engineers at NASA. Or even the case of, you know, Ellen Wilson or Tracy Stevens. You know, I think to your point earlier, which is interesting to me, I remember we struggled in the beginning when we were casting the show. A lot of our, our female actors we're struggling with the idea that you're just playing housewives, you know, that, wait, I don't understand what, like, I, <laughs> is that the extent of my character? I'm the wife of an astronaut. I want to be more than that. I've done more than that. And we had to explain to them, no, 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 it, it, we're starting you in this place because we want to build what the world was like, not look at things as they are today, but as they were then. Um, and then you'll see the trajectory. And Ellen's was definitely the most fascinating because I, I'll never forget our first meeting with her when we said, first of all, you don't appear till episode three. <laughs> <laughs> and you have not many words to say in that first episode, but you end up becoming president of the United States of America. And I remember she, <laughs> she was sort of taken aback. <laughs> she was taken aback by it. And, you know, even in season two, I remember there were times Jody, the actress who plays Ellen and who is unbelievable actress, um, I remember came to us and said, are you sure I'm still going to become president of the United States? And I think, you know, in the back of our minds, one of the interesting challenges of the show from a writing perspective is we have these threads. And usually in a season, you have a thread 
you work these threads out like a puzzle piece from episode one to episode 10, right? So you build these story threads and then by the end of the season, they come together. Matt and I also have threads that are going on over seasons. And Ellen was one of them, you know, the idea of we knew, yes, she has her own storyline in each season, but there's an overarching storyline about mm. her character. So to get back to your question about the optimistic, I think we set out to make a more optimistic show that's not dark, but at the same time, we want it to feel realistic. You know, what we've noticed in history and throughout history and today is whenever there's been progress, there's also been pushback. I mean, we're witnessing that all the time. And so, yes, the, the road to optimis the optimistic future is very bumpy. We wanted to kind of really capture that bumpiness with the show. But I think we aim to kind of convey that by looking up at the stars, by you know going deeper into the universe, we learn more about each other and what we're capable of. And I, and I think that is, it's hard sometimes with the news we hear every day to, to be optimistic or to work on a show that's optimistic. But it's something we really try to hold ourselves to with this show. And I think the characters, for the most part, are the ones who really show that growth and, and that potential. A very good way of thinking through that. I want to um, dig in on, as I said, uh, when we began this, the montages <laughs> that you put together, which I've been obsessed about. Uh, ben probably told you this, Matt, because that's how I first reached out to him. As you said, this is a device to get us from one season to the next, because there are 10 years that happen between each season. And um, what I love about them, because I watch them and then I hit pause and then I look in there, all the Easter eggs that are hidden in there, the ways in which you choose to uh, keep some things that we know, we all know happened during this era, like, you know, certain big movies that were ahead or superstars that died or whatever, but then just change little things like Michael Jordan now suddenly playing for Portland and not Chicago, John Lennon surviving the assassination attempt. But then there's the political piece as well as, as I said, how did they decide Gary Hart becomes president? So can you guys tell me how, first of all, how do you put these together? Do you just sit around like all yeah. year going, wouldn't this be cool if Michael Jordan played, didn't play for the Bulls? Wouldn't this be amazing if John Lennon lived and then there were Beatles reunions all the time? And then we're going to have Al Gore win, but not Bill Clinton. <laughs> so like, how do you do that? It, Darts. Uh, no, is, no. Yeah. It, it, it's one of the, the funnest parts of this whole process. And it's also one of the most exhaustive, oh. and exhausting because it's really like making a little mini documentary at the beginning of each season yeah. that, that takes probably as much time to make as a whole episode, like just the amount of, of thought behind it. And then the amount of finding the right clips and then adjusting those clips if they need to be and finding out if we're even allowed to, to yeah, the do legal anything with stuff. those, the legal side of uh, it is just, there's so oh, you mean the legal you, thing about, yeah. Using, so when you guys put like George HW Bush and Ellen yeah. Wilson together in a shot, are you saying there are legal issues there or it's more about putting Michael Jordan in a different jersey. It's more so, it's really about clearances more than anything. Mm. Like you have to clear who owns the photograph or oh, like okay. if there's a logo on a jersey, that's very difficult stuff. But then there are rules where like if there's a performer in something, you have to make sure they're okay with, with you using their image. The irony and, is the politicians are the easiest to, re yeah. <laughs> to reuse. Yeah, because much. all of that stuff is public. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. It's out in the we, public square. Yeah. yeah. So that we can no, go, to, go to town. It's funny. I think the first moment of our rewriting of history was Ted Kennedy not going to oh, Chappaquiddick. To Chappaquiddick. Because we brilliant. realized that that party at Chappaquiddick happened like right before the moon landing. And if the Soviets had beaten us, we imagine Teddy canceled the party and was like, I'm going to hunker down in Washington. And we're going to, and that would have changed his trajectory to the point where, you know, taking on the mantle of his brother in 1972, he's the one who challenges Nixon in 72. And we felt like he, because Nixon was president when we lost the moon, that right. would have also lowered his stature. And that was really the first point where we're like, oh, this is really fun and like then thinking okay if nixon's not president in, in in a second term well then reagan does rise up in 76 at that convention that he lost to ford like all those things that as history and political fanatics we love to just explore 
it's honestly gotten more and more fun to think about, but it's also a little more like you you could go so far off from reality. And <laughs> That's we, what I mean. How yeah. do you rein yourself in from not being yeah. like, oh, all of these amazing things just happened and these terrible things didn't. <laughs> well, yeah. it's it's funny. It's it's a metaphor for the everything else in the show as well, because there's a tendency with the show as it grows to go more fantastical, more sci-fi, oh. right? And I think Matt and I are constantly pulling the writers back and the designers and everyone from the breach of like, okay, let's let's make this real. Let's make this feel gradual change. And I think to your point, the the montages, that's a big part of it, is that really what those are doing is settling you, the viewer, in the world of the show and the era of that season. That's really the point of those. But, you know, we definitely spend too much time. <laughs> Matt and I can go down these rabbit holes of, wait, so would he even be in office? Because it goes to that point, too. Like, who is already a politician? Would right. the space race have changed that person's trajectory over someone else's? Would, the, you know, for the Gary Hart thing to go to that? You know, one of the reasons his career imploded was that affair, you know, that photo that got out. But in a World War Ted Kennedy's affair in our alt history comes out while he's president, the feeling we had is that the public is a little more desensitized to that kind of news, allowing Gary Hart, who at that time, by the way, you know, was definitely the favorite Absolutely. and definitely the front runner. So in our mind, okay, in, in a world where a presidential affair was already in the news, you know, what happens is people get desensitized to like, I mean, clearly look what's happening now. Like people get desensitized to that kind of news and suddenly Gary Hart's having that affair or that photo wouldn't implode his campaign. So those are the kinds of thoughts, the paths we go down. And sometimes we definitely like in the room have to stop ourselves and go, okay, can we talk, let's talk about our main characters again. And the focus on the, on the <laughs> right. spaceships and the Mars colony and not right. this. We can't but... spend too much time, more time on what would the electoral college map look like for Ellen Wilson, right? Like, yeah. uh, by the way, don't think I didn't notice that you guys took a shot at political reporters and prognosticators who wrote her off oh, yeah. uh, and for the biggest come behind victory in history. I, I, I heard that. I heard that. Okay, that's fine. We missed we missed the, the re-election, um, which was which was quite great. And I literally did. I looked at the, the electoral map. I'm sure you guys thought about that, too. We did. Oh, yeah. As you were as you're doing what states is she going to win? Yeah. Uh, the fact that you have Al Gore winning Florida really was just a nice little, the cherry on top of the, the Yeah, that may have been our, our personal feelings kind of leading in there. <laughs> We're like, just, just, let's, let's, just a few votes here and there. No, but, you know, even that, like, we didn't want it to just be, well, let's have him win Florida. Like, we, we actually, the Alien Gonzalez thing, I mean, that was definitely the news story that made us think an Al Gore could win in our alt history versus in real history. And, of course, you know, one of the things we loved with this concept is that Instead of him going up against George W. Bush, he goes on, up against the father, against George, George H. W. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's also right. A, a man who you know we actually have a lot of respect for as a politician and, and what he's done. But yeah, we you know our fascinated we're fascinated with political figures, but also political figures that are forgotten by history. Like we're obsessed with Jimmy Carter, we're obsessed with Lyndon Johnson. So I think a lot of th these places we go to in the room, in a way, are an escape for us. I mean, that's mm -hmm. our you know a lot of writers right. talk about. They need. They talk about what they're going to have for lunch and as escape from writing. I think for <laughs> for us, it's this. Like we, like when we were starting as writers, one of our like rewards for ourselves, like we would be writing all day and we would stop around. I mean, Matt, I think it was around three p.m. to watch McLaughlin Group. Just the yeah. two of us, like every day. Like that would be our. Issue that would be one. like our post lunch post lunch <laughs> reward for getting work done. Yeah. You know, so it, just to tell you what kind of. What kind of writers yeah. we are. It yeah. tells you everything you need to know about us. It does. It says you guys will be so welcome here at the Cook Political <laughs> Report. We would have a lot, a lot to talk about. Well, this alternate history gets me to this question, which is, as the timeline is now starting to catch up to us, right? And we're now in 2003 in season four. The characters are on Mars with this base there. You know, if you fast forward 10 more years, well, gosh, it's starting to feel like the kinds of things that, at least for an older person like me, 2003 doesn't feel that long ago. Yeah. Certainly 2013 doesn't feel that long ago. Yeah. Does that does that make it easier or harder? I think it makes it a lot harder, at least speaking for myself, because it's so recent. So everything is so top of mind. Yeah. But it's also our alternate 
reality is further and further away from reality. So it gets harder to find those ways to keep it connected. You know, I mean, one of our dreams with the show when we first conceived of it was that I guess it would be in the sixth season, there'll be a a season that takes place in the year that it's airing in, you know, so it's airing in 2025 or whatever, and it takes place in 2025. And you'll be able the viewers will be able to sort of look at their world out the window and then look at our world in 2025 of for all mankind and sort of compare the two and that kind of is at the heart of that optimism of the show or the aspirational quality is like that juxtaposition really does embody like what is possible if we just change little things that can grow into bigger things if you can give us a spoiler are we driving Jetson cars. That's really all that I, I need to know. It's so funny how that isn't the that Jetson the first thing car, everybody really comes. <laughs> anybody who grew up in our era, that is the yes. first thing we think of is we're yeah. all going to be driving Jetson cars. Forget about I you know. know Mars or other breakthroughs in in biomedical. All of that. It's like oh, I want to be driving a jet. I car know it, it was like the, the flying cars and the flying hovercrafts and the yes. hoverboards, like all those things yes. that they, we'd be so disappointed if we could look ahead and say, oh, we're just, we're so terrestrial. We're, we're, we're still just doing not, this. <laughs> we're still walking around <laughs> at our feet. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's interesting though, that, you know, one of the things we noticed in a lot of great fiction from the past, when they project the future, they always overshoot, almost always overshoot. Mm. It's almost, it's always like a more fantastical future than the future you find yourself in when you reach that date. And look, maybe that's aspirational in and of itself is this idea right. that we hope the world will advance that much. And I think, you know, that that's sort of what, in, you know, inspired the show in many ways, like the space race we were promised. In the 70s, the goal wasn't to land on the moon and stop. There were plans for the moon, for Mars, for bases, for sea, all this. And, and I think when the competition dried up and, and, you know, there was one superpower, there was less of an incentive. And I think it's not a coincidence now that there's competition rearing up again, not just with China and Russia, but also from corporate <laughs> corporations. I think it's it's there's again this push into, you know, into space, into the moon. And it's fascinating to see that happen literally as the show has kind of continued over the last five, six years, see that start to kind of peek its head again. That's exactly where I was going to ask you about, because obviously Elon Musk was around when you all were writing this show, but the intense focus on space travel, Jeff Bezos now getting into this as well. And then where you have the Chinese saying, we're now we're on the dark side of the moon, yeah. right? Um, yeah. This is all happening as you're writing the show. Is that right? Or was some of this happening in the run up to your writing it? Um, it's a bit of both, but I will say that I think we try not to chase events. We try to mm-hmm. um, just be in the mindset of what feels right in our world and not to toot our own horn, but we, <laughs> there's been a lot of occurrences of something we've done in the show, not anticipating that it's going to, something is going to happen in the real world. And then it just sort of comes up, you know, I think in the fourth season, we, we were interested in the idea of asteroid mining and the asteroid belt purely from, like we talked about earlier, uh, the new resource and like Mars actually doesn't have a lot of resources, but it's much closer to the asteroid belt. And it felt like that was a great way to tell the story about resources and the new kind of fight over those but then as you know we we write the season like 14 15 months before it airs now i think i think the day our trailer dropped is when they launched the mission to the psyche asteroid and it's just like you know there's these confluences that are so weird, honestly, that I don't know, we're starting to think maybe our writer's room is bugged and people are. <laughs> I think us so, too. And all the talk in your early seasons about, wa- you know, finding water on the moon. This right. is a yeah. conversation we're having now, which I don't remember this being part of our conversation. Again, the moon seemed so like, oh, that was 50 years ago. Yeah. There's nothing left there. Now it's like, no, 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 no. Get this water there. Boom. And I understood all of it because I watched the show of what it would mean to find. <laughs> and by the way, the base, there. the base they're looking for, if you see where they're actually wanting to land on the moon, it's around Shackleton Crater, like the Chinese and the Americans literally were landed. And not, I mean, look, we didn't 
pull it out of our ass. Like we have researchers, <laughs> we have astronauts that we consult with. So clearly we did think about it. Okay, if you're going to find water on the moon, where will it be? And also we loved that it was called Shackleton Crater. That didn't hurt. Yes. <laughs> but a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is, comes from that place of competition again, right? Like I think the Chinese yep. going there definitely spurs something in us. As much as politics, we hope, would come from a place of idealism. <laughs> it does come sometimes from cynicism. And, you know, that's fine too, you know. In a strange way, competition is something that is ingrained in all of us from an early age. I have two daughters. I see how literally from an early age, the competitive thing between them is what builds them in many ways. So I think that continues and you see how it impacts countries. And yeah, the, what's happening in the moon in many ways is, is kind of even more exciting than Mars because we can get there so much quicker. And I, I really feel confident now we're going to have people on the moon again within a few years. And just, I mean, hopefully what happened in season two does not, does not happen there. <laughs> right. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell the writers of uh, reality yeah. what to watch out for. Yeah. Do you all work with NASA on this? Are they part of this process? We don't directly work with NASA. Um, we work with a lot of experts in the field. Garrett mm. Reisman, for example, who was a former astronaut who worked at NASA and then at at SpaceX. And he's really been a key resource and, and a big part of grounding all the crazy ideas we come up with in the room and saying, no, that is literally not possible in according to the laws of physics. But, you know, but, but this is a way that it could fit within the laws of physics. That conversation, because honestly, Ben and I can can barely do multiplication and division. Like we're not we're not qualified on that level. So it's it's a real treat to get to learn more about it. And I do feel like I could build a Saturn V rocket myself by this point. <laughs> but um it would probably blow up on the pad. But um you know But you have the sets. I, I, I was reading somewhere that every detail of the sets you have of what NASA looked like in the 60s, in the 70s, 80s, yeah. et cetera, is like down to the specific switches and knobs on the computers. How, how did you come to that? A perfectionism. No, it's yeah. obsessive, yeah, obsessive detail. I think what is important to us, there's a lot of these sci-fi shows where you see people like pushing buttons in the background. And it's just like lit, lit up buttons and they're just pushing them. Yeah. That drives us crazy <laughs> personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, part of the goal early on was one, you know, we never want to have that. Like when someone's doing something, even in the background, even an extra, they're doing it with intention and there's a, a reason to what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so the designs also, it was really important to us, especially because it's an alt history, to have a respect for the history of how these buildings, how these sets mm. looked, how they looked in reality in the 70s. But now as we go into kind of more and more of the alt future, what's been really fascinating is building these sets and ships and the colony of Mars in a way that also makes sense. You know, we researched a lot, like to build a colony in Mars, what are some of the, the things you have to be worried about, including radiation? You know, you can't like a lot of it is you cannot expose a lot of these astronauts to radiation over time. So how do they deal with that? how they deal with, you know, the oxygen situation, how they deal with the mind. So much thought goes into it, thankfully, not just for Matt and I, but we have a huge production design team um, that also does a ton of research. And a lot of the research ends up looking like blueprints of what actual space program would do in terms of building mm. a colony on mm. Mars. So yeah, to, to Matt's mm. point, it sort of becomes, you have to become a, a real expert in a subject that you're just writing fiction about in order to make it feel grounded. And, and I think the more we're going into the future, the more that science starts to become a little theoretical, you know? I mean, in season one, a lot of the arguments, or there weren't arguments, it was like, well, this is what happened. This is the blueprint, this is what you can use. I noticed in season four, even our researchers were arguing with each other, you know, about, well, it would be like this. And then someone was, well, no, actually, I think it would be like, so we found ourselves being the referees a lot, and trying to find a middle ground. And I think that's going to be a fascinating challenge moving forward with the show is as we go more into kind of theoretical and what doesn't exist right now, how do you maintain that, that realism you were talking about? Yeah. Excellent point. One other question before I get to our final closing questions. It's noticeable as we go into season four. So here we are, we're coming into the 21st century and there's no 9-11. I assume that was deliberate. It was. Is this, again, is this because 
of a broader, the butterfly effect that what brought us to 9-11, all of those different factors were not in play in this alternate history? Or was this a way to tell the story about the other geopolitics that are going on, a lot of it out in space now? We have not just the Soviets, but you guys are introducing North Korea now into this season. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, the way we thought about uh, historical events like 9-11 is that they tend to be the culmination of a lot of things that happened a lot earlier on and the way geopolitics plays out over decades. And so for us, the root of that choice was a couple of things. We establish in, in between seasons one and two that the Soviets really didn't engage in Afghanistan in the way that they did because they were putting all of their resources into their space program to try to get up to the moon. And so the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviet invasion really didn't take place there, which was the training ground for a lot of that early Al-Qaeda fighters. Yeah. And the other big element, uh, something you, you brought up earlier, was this idea of nuclear fusion taking hold in the third season and becoming like a clean energy resource for the world. And I think a lot, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the reasons that that um, we had a character develop nuclear fusion yep. as this clean energy resource that kind of changed the dynamic of the world. And unfortunately, in our history, uh, a lot of the reason that people focused, that countries focused on that region was because of the oil resources within it. And so I think we really felt like that would have changed the trajectory of, of that major event in a way. Lots of other bad stuff happens in our, in our show. Uh, it just felt like that particular event was a seminal one that would have been different in our world. Yeah, I know you. I mean, you killed some of my favorite people. But, you know, whatever. I'm not holding it against you. It's all right. It's fine. I get it. You got to do it. It's for the show. But, like, yeah, really. Yeah. Some of my people. We're definitely of, creating some enemies. Some of them. You are. You are. Um, but not real enemies. I just, you know, maybe you can bring them back in a montage. Yeah. Flashback one season. of these days. Flashbacks. Have a whole yeah. flashback season. <laughs> there we can you hang go. Out with, we can hang out with Tracy again and, and Gordo. We'll be right back with more from The Odd Years. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report team. It's our way of sharing the questions we love to ask and the conversations we enjoy having behind the scenes. If you'd like to explore more of what we have to offer, consider subscribing at cookpoliticalreport.com slash subscribe. Odd Years listeners can use the discount code ODD10, that's ODD the number 10, to save 10% on any subscription. This offer is available only to new subscribers. And now back to my conversation with Matt and Ben. All right. Here is a question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, obviously we cover politics. So if you think back, this could be at any moment of your life, someone who was in politics, politician themselves, if you remember meeting or encountering that had an impression on you, or it's just someone who left that impression on you, even if you didn't actually meet them, but you're like, I remember the first political figure that really stuck with me was this person. I think for me it's it's a it's kind of a weird answer but but apparent when you watch our show. For some reason when I was young I watched All the President's Men when I was like 10 and mm. I was just fascinated by the idea of a president who wasn't a good person. <laughs> And I was like, wait a minute, there's something weird with this. Like they're supposed to be like the best person in the country. And he was a criminal. And so since that point, I have just been obsessed with Richard Nixon to the point where like I uh, in my office, I have this old mad magazine uh, that it, sa it says mad salutes the big con. And it's uh, Nixon and Agnew dressed up like the guys from the sting. And it's just oh, like it's a great. But for me, Nixon has been kind of a huge, fascinating figure. Mm. Yeah. Ben, I mean, do you have anyone? I mean, there's so many, honestly. It's it's one of those things, but I think the one that stands out the most is Lyndon Johnson and and probably because of the Robert Caro books mm. that really 
had a huge impact on me and on Matt. In fact, we were the ones when, whenever the book comes out, we're the rush to get it and read it. It almost became our Harry Potter books. Uh, again, but, one of the things that you did for fun in between <laughs> writing. Yes. I'm going to dig into a 2,000 page book. <laughs> when I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. This is the I same like nine year old who would run to watch 2020 on Friday nights and hang out <laughs> with his kids. So that, that tells you about that. But, but those books, I mean, what they did is they peeled back the life of, of yes. this politician in a way where you saw from very early on what impacted him, what changed him, what molded him into the effective legislator he later became. But also it showed warts and all. I think that's what I really appreciated about that. It gave you a real glimpse of the person, not just the figure. And really being able to go into a 2000 page book allows, allowed Kara to do it. But yeah, it's, it's something that Matt and I talk about, like, wow, how great would it be to kind of be able to do that story as a show, you know, to really show the story of a politician from oh, the beginning yeah. to the end of his career in a real complex, deep way. So that to me is one of those, those books I, I think about a lot, you know, and not only just when we talk about politics or news, just storytelling in general. I think the politics is a fascinating form of storytelling. I think we, storytelling is a part of yep. what makes politics so entertaining to us. Exactly. And the fact that the stakes are so high when it comes to it, you know, it's something that, that we lean into the show in a big way because we feel the interplay between space exploration and politics is, has been key element from the very beginning and continues to be. That's the one that really stands out to me. I assume you've both read What It Takes. Richard Ben Kramer. Yeah, that's Absolutely. another good storytelling. Good. Oh, I mean, yes. just a beautifully written book about, yes, the, the humans behind the names. I, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And then one last thing, we're starting off now that we're headed into an election year, asking our guests, they get to ask us something for our mailbag, which we will answer in a subsequent podcast. If there's any political question you have, it can be about people, places, House, Senate, Trends. Is there something you guys have been thinking about? Like, man, I wish they could answer this for me. Oh, that's a tough one. I know. <laughs> well, make it easy is really what I say. <laughs> easy questions, hard questions. The, the questions now are so deep and, uh, and complicated. Yeah, right. You don't have <laughs> the, the esoteric, like, yeah. why are we here? What are we I, doing? I mean, something that's popping up in my head now is how the conflict in Israel is going to impact Biden in terms of the fracturing of the yeah. left and the yeah. Democratic Party. And is that really going to be as big a deal as I'm worried it is going to be in terms of holding that group together? Because he's got to win. <laughs> you know, so I'm just every little group that starts to grumble and go off, I'm just concerned that it's going to go a different way if we can't hold this big tent together. Uh, it's, yeah, it's that's, a, that's an interesting question. All right. Question number one for Matt, <laughs> Ben. I think it's interesting, maybe a branching off that question in a mm. way, with the, how the Jewish vote may change in this election. Because, you know, I, I, I'm Jewish, and I think there's a history of the Jews in America voting liberal, voting Democrat. Yeah. I mean, really yeah. forever. And I th I, I'm sort of, I have pride in that so in a way that I feel I can sense that this fracturing of the left is also cyclical. It's, it's happened before in history. And it's really like in the 70s, 80s, that it happened. And there is a concern, yeah, is that, is that happening again? And will that impact the chat? That's not, not a real question I'm asking. <laughs> yes, I'm asking it. No, but it is. These are really salient questions about the coalitions that right now power the two parties and what I love about covering politics. And it's also, I think from this conversation, what you guys love writing about is the complexities, right? And that as you go from decade to decade or year to year or personality to personality, those coalitions change. You know, every politician thinks that they're going to be able to keep the one before it, right? I just right. need to turn out the Obama coalition. Yeah. We just need to win over the, the Bill Clinton coalition or the George W. Bush coalition. It's like, no, no, no. Every one of these people who win, they have their own coalition. Yeah. A lot of it, yeah, it does pass down because it is just like the base and it's going to go wherever the the party goes. But 
a lot of those pieces, who shows up, who stays home, is driven by the person in that job. And then you think about big effects we've been seeing right over the course of the last 25 years or so, this fracturing on Israel happening, but it was within the Democratic Party and it was really sort of academic and theoretical. Yeah. And it's it's obviously no longer theoretical. Yeah. And so you're right. What is this going to tell us about Jewish vote, younger voters as they're coming of age during this time, which would be another fascinating. You guys can write a whole, a whole <laughs> script. No, I mean, it's funny. As you're saying that, I was thinking about our Ellen Wilson coalition, because a lot of it is to yes. that point. A lot of times what gets a lot of the attention is the, the loud voices on the right or left. But America tends to vote in the middle. And I think that's yeah. what we felt led her to to that reelection was she was able to grab the middle um, in a polarizing time. So I think I think that's always been I think the appeal of Biden. But it's a tricky it's a tricky one in a polarized world. How does he maintain? How that? do you do that? Yeah. yeah. Are we going to see Ellen Wilson ever again? <laughs> you know, it's we never say never is what we we'll say. <laughs> but she's a former president. Now, yeah. I guess. It, well, yeah, exactly. In a way, uh, we we kind of look at it uh, like through a story arcs of a character, and we always felt that was the end of her arc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although the idea of like an ex-president private detective on Jupiter is an interesting <laughs> spinoff we could go to. Uh, <laughs> but we, you know, it's it's hard because one, we love the character, but even yes. more, uh, the actress who plays the character is yeah was su- it was such an amazing uh, partnership and the ability to work with her and and see not only see the growth that she imbued that character um, over seasons. If you watch what she who she is in season one, and then see the evolution. Like, I remember saying, okay, if you're president, how are you going to convey like that way exactly. all of a sudden? How do you grab that? And Jody took to it so amazingly. And even in a way that as high as our expectations were for her, exceeded our expectations. That arc over three seasons is one of the things I'm most proud of on this show. And it's in large part to what she was able to pull off. So again, we will work with her again, no doubt. It just feels like as a terrible fact of the show, we kind of have to move on. Yeah. I mean, you kind of got to go. You're a, yeah. you're just an ex-president now. Just ask yeah. all the other ex-presidents. <laughs> yeah. No one else is like, Oh, can I make a show about you? They're like, no, stay on wherever you are. I know. We, it's so strange. It must be. Yeah. That whole so, I always thing. think about that, like Obama younger than yeah. Biden, yet he's out right. there and there's this weird thing of like, no, your time is done. It's like, I'm younger than both candidates for, pre- you know, for president. It's such an, such Isn't that so weird? Reality. Yeah. I, I think about that with Bill Clinton all the time, right? So he must have been, what, in his mid-50s when he mm-hmm. left office. And so you're alive and watching your legacy get rewritten constantly. Mm. Yeah. You know, he leaves with, he's the most popular huh. Democrat ever. Yeah. And then 16 years later, his entire party, including his wife, as she's running for president, distanced themselves yeah. from everything he accomplished yes. right yeah. you don't do nafta yeah. can't don't ask don't tell <laughs> yeah welfare reform the crime bill yeah and yeah. and he has to and he's watching it happen yeah. it's it's one thing when you say this is happening after you're gone so it is it's a fascinating thing to be we want younger presidents and yet we live longer so they then have to be in this awkward place where what, what do you do for the yeah. 30, 40 years left in your life? Yeah. You make TV shows. That's what Obama <laughs> said. There we go. Yeah. Well, that's go true. He did, he did do Netflix. Um, Netflix. Okay. Okay. I got it. See, so there I is something it. beyond uh, yeah. being president of the United that's States. Right. Yeah. This is much producer. cooler. I would totally do this instead. <laughs> you guys were so fun. Thank you for doing this. I'm really excited for the show to officially kick off. And believe me, we'll be telling everybody that we know to watch this and to start. I know people like binging. That's why this is also perfect. Start in season one, people. Yes. It's really, could you jump in in season four? Sure, of course. But you will appreciate it so much more if you get yourself from season one to here, especially our Ed and Margot characters who have been quite interesting. <laughs> I can't wait to hear more about her as we go through the season. Oh yeah. She's Our Soviet work. dissident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was All particularly right. fun to shoot in uh, the winter in Bulgaria. So uh, <laughs> were you really? Oh yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was very important for us to find a place that felt as close to that era of the Soviet Union as possible. And so it was really that storyline has turned out really in a great way. uh, And we're excited for people to see it because it's it's unlike anything we've done on the show. Really, as I said, we got to get into season four to see more of it. But she I've really loved her character. Really? It's, you guys have given her so much. No, and to, for, yeah, for her to start in season four back in a place like where she was in season one, back at the bottom, having to work her way up. Ren Schmidt, who plays Margot, really the, the challenge of like, I'm separating you from the rest of the cast. You're going to Bulgaria <laughs> in, <laughs> in the, the, middle winter. Of the winter <laughs> as the war in Ukraine is raging close by. It was definitely surreal because we were putting, you know, Soviet soldiers and Soviet flags everywhere in Bulgaria as the war was happening. And you could just see people in the street doing double takes of like, what, what's going on right. here? What, uh, like, no, no, we're an alt we history concerned? show. Don't right. worry about it. Yeah. But it was definitely a surreal experience over there. But like Matt said, it, it, it kind of was perfect to convey what we needed to convey and to really have Margot feel like she's in that world. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely feels like that from here. I was cold just watching <laughs> it. So it yeah. worked. So tell her it paid off Will do. To having to wear all those layers in Bulgaria. Well, thanks again, you guys. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the kickoff. Thank and you, I'm, Amy. I'm looking forward to seeing seasons five and six. Thanks, Amy. It was a lot of fun. Now that you've heard a bit more about the montages that help viewers bridge the decades between the seasons of For All Mankind, I hope you enjoy them in a whole new light. It's a feast for those of you who enjoy Easter eggs tucked into shows like this. I'm so grateful to Ben and Matt for joining us and for creating a universe where the sliding doors bring us an opportunity for optimistic outcomes in even the most difficult of circumstances. On a closing note, we'll have more to say in response to Ben and Matt's mailbag questions for us when we launch season two of The Odd Years in 2024. Now, if you'd like to ask a question of me or of my Cook Political Report colleagues, and be featured in an upcoming episode of the pod, please call 202-739-8520 and press eight. Be sure to leave your first name, city and state with your question. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Amy Walter and this is The Odd Years. The Odd Years is brought to you by The Cook Political Report and is produced by Ali Flynn and Catherine Hamm with podcast editing and sound design by Kate Wecker of Sonic Hook Creations.